I will say it's so convenient to small group on Zoom because you can be like, turn off video for a second and mute, you know. Not that I do that, but um, good morning. Uh, my name's Chris. Um, I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Riverstone. I'm glad you're with us. Um, it is the second week of Lent. Uh, last week, I invited you uh, to participate in some form or fashion of fasting, right? Very exciting stuff. And uh, I just want a full disclosure. Uh, I deliberated until Wednesday of this week, all right? So if you haven't quite figured it out, um, there's plenty of time, and I'm a horrible example. And then, oh my goodness, how difficult Thursday, Friday, and Saturday was. Oh my gosh. And I wasn't fasting from food. I was fasting from something. But it's still, it was amazing how my heart immediately tried to fill in the vacuum that been, had been created from the fasting with other equally unhealthy things. So if you haven't started, it's never too late to jump in. And I promise you will not regret it if you fast something like social media or TV or something like that, right? It can be very uh, productive um, in your spiritual life. Um, Today, I want to speak to you about one of the most refreshing, life-giving, joy-filling practices known to humanity. Has the power to fill you with hope? Has the power to fill you with hope that you prior thought impossible? It restores dreams. What we're going to talk about today. It opens doors that you were convinced were cemented shut. I want to talk to you about something that does this, practice. It, doors that you never thought would open again in your life. It busts those doors into tiny little pieces. Literally opens the door to life. Breaks the dam that was holding back the life-giving waters from the landscape of your soul. This practice that I want to talk to you today about allows life to grow again where there is only death and darkness. It brings flourishing, vibrancy, freedom that you could never imagine, right? It breaks addictions. It restores light to your eyes and clarity to your thinking. It strengthens your bones. What I want to talk to you today about liberates you like nothing else can liberate you. It causes your soul to breathe deeply again, right? But this practice doesn't just fill you with more joy in life than you can handle. It flows out. It impacts those around you equally as much. What I want to talk to you today about restores relationships. It acts like healing salve on wounds and hurts and offenses. It begins to rebuild bridges that you yourself burnt in hopeless despair. It almost reverses the clock as it were, starts things again. It begins the restoration of trust and makes your relationships encouraging and secure and building up in nature rather than divisive, hostile, and insecure and competitive in nature. I want to speak with you today about the only thing that can remove shadows and darkness from your life. It literally takes away the self-established obstacles that were blocking the light of God from shining in your heart and life. I'm just going to keep going because I'm feeling it. What I want to talk to you today about breaks down mountains 
It builds up valleys. It's what John the Baptist was inviting you into when he said, make straight the paths of the Lord. It was one of the most repeated invitations in Jesus' ministry. Over and over and over, Jesus was inviting us into life and light and vibrancy. He was inviting us into this over and over and over again. Anyone want to guess? Repentance. The CR man. He's loud and proud, brother. Loud and proud. One of the most repentance. Repentance is one of the most refreshing, life-giving, joy-filling practices known to man. Brings flourishing, brings vibrancy, brings freedom where you never could imagine you could be free, right? Everything I said, I, I meant 100%. Repentance restores light to your eyes. Repentance gives clarity to your thinking. Right? Begins the process of building trust in relationships again, healing, all of these things. One of the most repeated invitations Jesus preached in his ministry. There is not a more hope-filled, brimming with life invitation known to man. But because you went to youth group, because you saw that religious wacko with the street sign, because in English 101 you read sinners in the hand of an angry God, the idea of repentance has been, listen to the words, disfigured and mutilated. The idea of repentance has been disfigured and mutilated by the enemy, right, to be some horrible, shameful, depressing religious routine of self-hatred in which you have to perform like an actor on a stage whipping yourself and adopting Eeyore's mentality. You know Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? See, so often Christians think repentance means you have to look at yourself like Eeyore looked at himself. Thanks for noticing me. Stare at the ground and mutter to yourself and wallow in self-pity. And then God's like, all right, good deal. That's what I'm looking for, right? At small group, someone was sharing that she grew up in a tradition Um, that it didn't matter what you gave up for Lent. The point was that it needed to hurt, you know? And the person who hurt themselves the most, well, I guess they're the most spiritual, right? And then we see a billboard that says, repent and flee the wrath to come. And it creates a truncated and incomplete anti-gospel understanding of what repentance really is. Stay with me. How? Well, it creates a view of repentance that is clearly work-based. It's a view of repentance that says, is if you'll do this, then God will let you off the hook. If you grovel, you need to grovel a bit more, a bit more. Okay, that's enough. But don't look happy. And then God's going to say, okay, you, you're, you're okay now, right? And you see, guys, that is just the same as if you follow the rules, he'll receive you and accept you. It's just inverted, right? All you're doing is making the rule, well, if I hate myself and put on a show of sadness and roll around in dust and ashes, then God will do this, right? Never actually deal with your sin, never invite Jesus to heal, just look sad about it, and you're good. And instead of submitting to reality, 
You are trying to manipulate reality to get what you want, which is, well, I just don't want to go to the hot place when I die. So I have to jump through this hoop. It's called repentance, right? I still want to clutch my sin to my chest. Mercy, mercy, right? But I also want to go to heaven. So I just need to look sad, <laughs> right? Need to hate myself. Cool, I can do that, right? Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation in the 15th and 16th century, suffered from horrible anxiety about the disapproval of God and became a monk in efforts to meet what for him seemed like an unbearable and harsh moral obligation. He felt God was demanding of him. He was literally riddled with fear of judgment and was taking the whole, well, if I subject myself to the aesthetic lifestyle, right, withhold all good for myself, then God will accept me, which of course was why the gospel was so utterly remarkable to him. Because he had taken this line, well, I need to beat myself and whip myself and do all the things, and then God will accept me. And then he figured out, by faith through grace. And that was just a not, it's a byproduct of believing, right? Repentance comes after the fact. It's why by faith alone through grace alone was so shocking to him because he was raised thinking, no, I need to beat myself. I need to hate myself. I need to withhold good for myself. And it wasn't until he read scripture, the true nature of the gospel began to bear its weight on him that repentance and belief is simply the way we enter into grace that's already been given. Repentance is not the path of a legalistic checklist or guilt that we have to show to perform before God will accept us, right? It's not the path of self-hatred or of self-loathing. Repentance is the path into joy and light and life and peace. And as C.S. Lewis said, every week, guys, you're just going to get a Lewis quote, right? Someone called me out on it last week. I was like a guilty, you know. C.S. Lewis said, repentance is not something God demands of you before he will take you back. It is simply a description of what going back to him is like. And because God is the end goal of repentance, it is therefore an invitation to overflowing and abundant life. While it may involve some extremely difficult steps, it is in the end an invitation into joy. And I want to challenge your notion of repentance today, and especially if your notion of it is like what I described earlier and you grew up in church, right? So we're going to read Luke verse 3 and then we'll chat. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 3. Verse 2 to 18. And this is just going to be a springboard. Um, We're not really going to get deep into this text. We're just going to use it as a springboard to talk more about repentance. Luke chapter 3, verse 2. During the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, so good at this, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, Caiaphas, mercy me. Three. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So he's describing what repentance does in your heart and life for God, makes his path straight into, your, into the interior of your life. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, <laughs> who warns you to flee the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, 
God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. When the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? He answered, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. And tax collectors also came to be baptized, and he baptized them. If you know anything about first century tax collectors and, and Jewish culture, and you know this is a big deal for him. And they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Because they would collect more and take the skim off the top, right? That's why they were hated amongst their people, collecting money for the Romans. 14, soldiers, Roman soldiers came to him and also asked, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. This is why I said repentance flows out to other people, you see. All of those actions were lateral actions, relational actions that repentance was enabling and affecting. 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, all that so I can read this. And so, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. So let's pray. Father, I pray um, for our hearts right now, and I ask, Lord, that the peace of the Holy Spirit would rest on us, Jesus. God, I pray that you would comfort those who are hiding in darkness, that you would call them, because of your goodness, into the light. Father, I pray that we would receive the invitation to repent and bear fruit that keeps with repentance. Lead us in the way that leads to life, Jesus. No one else can do it but you. And let me pray these things. Amen. Really all I want to explore today is this question. How on earth is you brood of vipers, the axes at the root of the tree, bear fruit or get thrown to the fire, repent, good news. Because Luke's language here clearly lumps this whole scene. Do you catch this? Luke's language here lumps this whole scene into good news being proclaimed. That word, glad tidings, specifically joyful news of God's kindness and messianic blessing. How? How is you brood of vipers repent or perish, get interpreted as good news? That's what we're going to talk about. So let's see. If we can imagine a scenario that this kind of language might be implemented and we can figure out why on earth Luke would be able to call this good news. And I'm going to start, I have a couple scenarios, okay? Story time, y'all. I'm going to start from less accurate scenarios to more accurate, okay? So don't get all jumpy if you're like, well, that's not exactly, okay, I'm getting there, all right? So let's imagine the time is 1700 in a small isolated island where there is a tribe 
in which a great sickness had seized the people. Let's say it was some sort of leprosy or intestinal disease or something like that, right? They had, the tribe had exhausted all of their medicines and witch doctors, right? And their people are slowly dying one by one. They don't know why. They can't fix it. And a biologist from another land comes and he realizes that the sickness is due, in fact, to their diet. They are eating a plant that's causing this. And the plant, unfortunately, is at the center of their religious rituals. And they all eat it regularly, and they consider the food to be sacred. And it's much of what they eat. And he stands in the center of the town and calls out, you're poisoning yourself by eating this. It's killing you. No matter what religious rituals you act, in fact, the more religious rituals you do, the more you're killing yourself. You have to stop eating the plants. It's the plant that's killing you. You're do- Nothing's going to help you. You have to stop eating it, right? Well, of course, some would be greatly offended by this, right? It's our sacred plant. How dare you say that, right? But... To those who listened and who changed their thinking about the plant, well, they began to heal. And they were able to run again and breathe again. And it was the best, most... They would say that the day that biologist came to their town was the day of salvation. They would say that he came to heal and save and liberate. And they'd say it rightly. Now, the religious leaders obviously would not like him very much. They were real upset, right? They died soon after, so, you know, they, but they were mad about it. <laughs> they were mad about it before they died. Maybe it's more like radioactive fallout, like this one, right? A little closer to our time, right? It's contaminating the water, leaching into the water table. It's invisible and it's deadly. And so this wild-eyed, crazy-haired geologist runs through the streets saying, uproot your family and move! You have to leave here if you want to live. You have to rethink everything. You have to quit your job. You have to buy another house. You have to get out of this town. Of course, what an affront to us, right? What are you talking about? We're fine, right? The New Testament says when it calls us to repent, it gets it, implies, right, that we are turning from death to life. It is an invitation to live. Maybe it's more like every movie you've ever seen, when the good guy realizes that the bridge is out on the tracks, right? And the train is going 60 miles an hour towards death, and he runs to the passenger cars, and he yells, we've got to stop the train. And everyone does what? They laugh at him, right? They laugh at him, right? I mean, can you even count how many movies this happens, right? Because Someone runs in, and they raise the flag of warning, but because the train is going so smoothly, because no one else seems alarmed at the invitation to stay alive, they laugh at him, and they mock it, right? And no one realizes that this crazy man coming in, upsetting everything, was their only shot at living. You guys seen that movie, right? Like Maybe it's, and then here's the most accurate picture, okay? Maybe... Repentance is more like this, and it's a little more complex, and I think a little more accurate. 
the movie scenario in which someone is highly committed to something that is actually killing them or will be the cause of their death in the near future. So what is that? What am I talking about? Well, it's the, oh gosh, I don't know. The, I should have told what's the name. I can't think of the name. It's like a family guy, and it's a TV show. And he gets, like, in with drug dealers and cartels. There's, like, a bird. No, well, now there's another one. There's, like, a bird on the... Anyway, I can't remember it. Good job, Pastor. Way to do your research. It just came to me now. It's not in my notes. Um, he's highly committed to making money in this way and ends up being the cause of all of the you know, grief and death and violence and hiding his family and having to move all this kind of stuff, right? Uh, maybe it's, there's another one. I'll think of it later. I'll, I'll, what did you say, Kevin? Yes, that's the one. That's the one. Is that? Is that right? Okay, okay. This is the bird. There's a bird on the thing. You're like, no, that's actually about something else. So, anyway. yeah, no. Um, or, right? Sorry. I do this all the time. Um, or someone is highly committed to getting money, like this guy, or pleasure or power through some illicit means or addiction. What we're seeing in all of these movie plots, right, is a high level of commitment to something that in the end will kill them. And the reason it kills them in the end is because they refuse to let go of that commitment. Despite the monologue at the end where the good guy's like, if you just take my hand, they say, no, right? And they, instead of taking the good guy's hand, they clutch the thing to their chest, whatever it was, and they fall to their death, right? You guys know the one? You can still change. Take my hand. They don't listen. And because the bad guy refuses to release this one possession, or this method or this desire, it kills them, you know, despite the good guys. So movie after movie after movie portrays this kind of, I've chosen this word on, on purpose, portrays this kind of madness. It's insane. It's when they are clutching something to their chest that is killing them. And even in the light of invitation to life, they say, No. I would rather have this thing and die than give it up and live. It's insane. That's what the invitation to repentance is. Stop clutching this thing to your chest that's killing you. That's the invitation. And that's why it's a joy-filled invitation. And that's why it's a victorious invitation. And that's why it's an invitation that invites light and vibrancy and freedom into your life that no other invitation can invite, right? This idea of ignoring the invitation to life because you want something else more is alive and well in our cultural imagination. And forgive me for using this. I'm a product of my time. I throw myself on your good graces. It's like Gollum, who would rather possess the ring of power and fall into moving lava, then release the ring of power and live, right? And it's madness. Therefore, repentance is a call back to sanity. Repentance is a call back to sanity. Repentance is like waking up from a nightmare and for the first time seeing that it is the thing in your hand that has been killing you. And it's shocking and it shakes you to the core when you realize you have been highly committed to hide and 
scheme and connive so that you could hold this one thing that is killing you. Huh? And it's shocking and it's abhorring because you realize it only had power over you because you had given it power. You had invited it in. You had rolled it under your tongue and kept it in your back pocket. And you thought you were driving, which you failed to realize this has been driving you for a long time. You insisted on it, and it was a thing. Of course there's emotion involved in repentance. How shocking, horrifying is that? I've been killing myself by clutching this thing. Isaiah 44, 20 says this. A deluded heart has led him astray and cannot deliver him or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Repentance is the realization of these things. And it shakes you to the core. All these movies, whether they're admitted or not, are simply copying God's story in history because his is the greatest story ever told that we're a part of. Part of God stands at the door reasoning with us to enter life, y'all. Trying to convince us to release the attitudes and beliefs that are and will in the end kill us, right? Let me prove it to you. Isaiah 1.18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the the mouth of the Lord is spoken. Every plot movie has in it this kind of God-given reality of the dignity of choice. And it's laid before all the characters. If that's not a God-given reality, then why does God say, let us reason together? It is a God-given reality, the dignity of choice. And so movies are simply tracking these characters' choices. And because some respond in this way, die horribly, and because some respond in this way, live on in joy, right? Instinctually, Christian or not, we feel this is ultimately true. There is a decision to be made. And that those decisions that we make will mark our experience of life and peace or of death and, and, and languishing, right? So it's why it's amazing to me how for so many people, the gospel invitation of repent and believe has come to feel like some heavy, dogmatic, almost unfair choice, right? What I'm trying to tell you is it is reality. We make choices. We bear its consequences. Yet the gospel comes to us saying, you've actually already chosen, right? All of you, we've chosen, right? And we've chosen to make our own way rather than trust in the faithfulness of God. And now, awash in the consequences of your own sinfulness and death and addiction and despair, a way back to life has been made. Light has come into the darkness. Behold the Lamb of God. Turn and walk in his ways and receive life again. Receive joy again and get off the road that leads to death. And in the depth of our depravity, we turn and scorn the invitation to life. Despite all the evidence of our misery and depression and violence and neurosis and paranoia and crippling anxiety and wars and hatred, when the way to life is laid before us, we say, who do you think you are? Tell me how to live, right? Your narrow, anti-science, sexist, arrogant, religious claims. And look, man, I know Christians. Like, I'm, Christians sometimes are narrow and anti-science and sexist and arrogant, but Jesus never was, all right? Humble in heart, humble in heart, 
inviting all who would come, no matter sex, race, or intelligence. If you don't believe that, read the Gospels. The point is Jesus' invitation to repent was an invitation to all, and it was an invitation to unending, flourishing, vibrant life, y'all. Life, in fact, that he said would last forever. Eternal life is what he called it. And the door into that life, the door into that life has his blood on the doorpost. And repenting and believing is the practical steps of walking through it. We talking? Repenting and believe. You can't walk through the door unless you are repenting. Those are the practical steps of walking through it. And it's why it was the call of the church. Read Acts. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Over and Jesus' first words when he started his ministry, Mark 1.15, the time has come. Repent and believe. Right? Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, your forgiveness of sins. Acts 3.19, repent, turn to God. Acts 26.20, let's see, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. So we'll end today by this with a few notes on repentance, okay? Be quick today, sort of, yeah, pretty quick. What did Jesus mean when he said repent? Well, the New Testament word for repent is metanoia. Metanoia, it is exclusively the word that's used in the New Testament when they said repent. Meta comes, or we know the word meta from something like metaphysical. See, metaphysical is beyond the physical, right? Noia, we might recognize notion or thoughts. Paranoia is madness in your thoughts. So metanoia means to get beyond your thoughts, to get outside of your thinking, When he says repent, he is saying, think about your thinking. Get outside of your thinking and look at how you're thinking from a different perspective. So we we have these connotations of of, uh, emotional outbursts and that's what you do when you repent. No, I could be repenting right now. (laughs) I don't know what you look like when you try to get outside your thinking. I probably look like a deer in headlights because you're trying to you're trying to escape from the captivity of your own thinking. And this is why community is so unbelievably essential in our confession and repentance. Because it's when someone else comes and says, well, you know, you might be thinking about that a little skewed. Have you thought about it this way? You know what, that's, you know what your friend is helping you do? Facilitate repentance. Repentance only means think about your thinking. Stop. Ask yourself questions about the way you are thinking and be willing to admit that my thinking here is wrong. And if you're willing to do that, then good news, the door to life is open to you, y'all. If you are not willing to think about the way you are thinking, if you are not willing to admit that you may be thinking wrong, the door to life is closed to you. You may not enter. That is the only way into the door, repentance and faith. That's why the door of salvation is kind of small. You've got to bend down on your knees to get through it. You can't take all that stuff with you. You've got to be willing to get, get rid of that stuff to fit through that door, right? Metanoia. He's not saying get weepy-eyed and downcast. He's saying think about your thinking. Reassess what you think is necessary for life. Reassess what you think is necessary for life. Repentance, number two. Repentance is not, as some seem to think, and as some testimonies seem to imply, a one-time thing. You ever hear those testimonies? They're like, well, I was a dirty sinner, but now I'm awesome. <laughs> like, I just can't relate to those. 
again, like for me, repentance is what Matt Chandler calls an ongoing ethic in my Christian walk. I can't seem to get past it. I wish I could. I just, I just, is that okay? Everyone's like, <gasps> right? Maybe not you, but my little weak, sinful heart finds itself rebelling over and over and over again. Pride over and over and over again, sabotaging my relationship with my wife. Maybe it's just me. But insecurities continually pushing me to be harsh. Exhaustion continually causing me to have a victimized mindset. Hmm? Exhaustion continually making me feel like the victim and I'm entitled to all these demands to my family. And I have to over and over again repent. Over and over again, I have to be willing. And if I don't do it, I just drift. My family sees it. I see it. My friends see it. My heart hardens and I quit living. And I drift from my relationships. I drift from intimacy. I drift from vulnerability and I quit being known. And there I am, an island all to myself in my pride and arrogance because I cannot repent. I cannot think about the way. I cannot take responsibility for my contribution to the mess. I say it's your fault, right? And of course, we know this kind of constant awareness and honest responsibility is necessary in any relationship, y'all. Any relationship. This is a necessary ingredient. If not, you're going to drift away from that person if you're not willing to be honest and take responsibility for your contribution of the mess. If you are unable to take responsibility for your end, then the only other choice you have is it's your fault. And the demand for change then falls solely on the weight of your spouse. Sorry, I'm using marriage a lot. I'm just, I'm married. So if you're not married, I'm sorry. On the weight of your friends, on the weight of your boss, whatever. It, it translates, okay? Right? If I said to my wife, <laughs> I don't need to apologize to you for being a self-obsessed jerk. I apologized for that 10 years ago. Get over it. Aren't you a Christian? You aren't supposed to forgive? Right? I get, I get slapped in the mouth, right? And I would deserve it, right? If you expect to maintain any degree of intimacy and trust in any relationship, you will routinely have to humble yourself. Go to them. Admit blind spots, insecurities, and failures. Of course, this is true in our relationships, and of course, it is true with God. Perhaps a bit more so with the Lord. Unless you're perfect. Anyone want to... <laughs> Can I just say to you, if it has been a while since you owned your own shortcomings to those closest to you, you may be walking in an arrogant pridefulness that may be the very reason you feel isolated and alone. Just like any relationship, so it is with the Lord. If we lack the humility and self-awareness to acknowledge our shortcomings, the relationship will eventually lose significance and reward in its your own pride that is strangling it. Number three, repentance is not something you can do in your own strength without God's gospel power behind it. How? Two ways. And then we'll wrap it up. Three, A. He opens the door to life. God opens the door. Romans 2, 4 says this. We're told it's God's pre-established manifested kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. He acts first. He enables. He opens the door first. You could not have the option to walk through the door if he had not opened it. Therefore, Acts 5.11 talks of repentance being given. 
Acts 11.18 says the Jews rejoice in that God had to the Gentiles also granted repentance that leads to life. Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.25, Paul encourages Timothy to correct his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Repentance is granted in the way that God opens the door first. 3B, he enters into our weakness and suffers and dies himself. Now, how does that help us repent? How does God entering our weakness and suffering and dying help us to repent? Well, and this is what we're going to end on today. All other religions consist of gods who demand strength and moral value in and of yourself before you can be accepted. Christianity is a God who enters into our weakness and himself takes our weakness and humiliation on himself and is present with us holding our hand down the path that leads to life. Here we go, Lewis. I'm going to read you a, a spell and then we'll be done. This repentance, this is from your Christianity. This repentance, this willing submission to humiliation and a kind of death is not something God demands of you before he'll take you back, of which he could let you off if he choose. It is simply a description of what going back to him is like. If you ask God to take you back without it, you're really asking him to let you go back without going back. It can't happen. Very well then. We must go through it. But the same badness which makes us need it makes us unable to do it. Can we do it if God helps us? Yes. But what do we mean of talking of God helping us? We mean God putting into us a bit of himself, so to speak. He lends us a little of his reasoning powers, and that's how we think. He puts a little of his love into us, and that's how we love. Now, if we had not fallen... That would be all plain sailing, but unfortunately, now we need God's help in order to do something which God, in his own nature, never does, to surrender, to suffer, to submit, to die. Nothing in God's nature corresponds to this process at all, so that the one road that which we now need God's leadership, most of all, is a road God, in his own nature, has never walked. But supposing God became a man. Suppose our human nature, which can suffer and die, was amalgamated with God's nature in one person, then that person could help us. He could surrender his will and suffer and die because he was man, and he could do it perfectly because he was God. You and I can go through this process only if God does it in us, but God can do it only if he becomes a man. Our attempts at this dying will succeed only if we share in God's dying, just as our thinking can succeed only because it's a drop out of the ocean of his intelligence. But we cannot share God's dying unless God dies. He cannot die except by becoming a man. That is the sense in which he pays our debt and suffers for us what he himself need not suffer at all. Repentance is a kind of death. But the good news is, it's a death of the part of you that's ruining your life. <laughs> right? It's a death of the part of you that you know is sabotaging your joy. Right? And even with the help of the leadership of Jesus in repentance, we still seem to repent like we choose a restaurant. You know what I'm talking about? Eh, I'm bored of that one. Let's try this one. But let's keep that one in eye shot just in case we change our mind. Last note, while repentance doesn't mean we wallow in self-pity, it does mean that our thinking changes so drastically in the light of God's love that we now hate our sin. 
where once we rolled it under our tongue and kept it in our back pocket. Repentance means that we cease that the sin that we once kept close as cancerous and life-destroying and rebellious and prideful and arrogant, which it is, right? We forsake it. That's what it means. We abandon it. We reject it. We despise it and embrace the light. And the only obstacle to the light of God bringing growth and life in your own heart is pride, y'all. Psalm, Psalm 36.2 says this. It tells of a tragic position in which pride blinds us to our sin. It says, in their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. May God in his mercy lead us from that path, right, and into the path that we can see our own sin. In a room this size, there's no doubt that there are things we have to repent of. Shoot, if I was the only one in the room, there would be things I have to repent of, right? But the good news is, the gospel news is that on the other side of that door is freedom, life, and times of refreshing. Acts 3.19 says, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. The landscape around us is about to change. You feel it in the air? I love it, right? I already see some trees blooming. Flower color is about to flood back into the landscape. Don't allow the landscape of your heart to remain a desert because of your pride. Learn from the nature outside that when the light shines, things grow. And if you are hiding in a cave from the light of God so that you will not be exposed, let me just say things can't grow. You won't experience the goodness that he wants us to experience. Let's stand and pray. I think as Christians, we should not only not be afraid to repent, but actually eagerly walk towards it. Do you know why? Because the gospel is real. If grace is not real, if the cross is not effective, then no way. I'm not going to repent. Got to keep it all together. It's all on me, right? But if the gospel is real, then the pressure's off. There is grace. There is mercy. There is forgiveness. And we need not fear being known. So this is the part of our worship service where we come to the communion table. All believers are invited to the table.